Let's go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a new week with Aid Station X-Rays. I'm Valerie, and I'm here with Chris. We are super pumped this week to have a special guest on to talk about something insanely incredible they've just done. Um, this special guest I've known for a whopping 32, 31 years, 32, yeah, something like that. Um, I, I watched his first t-ball game. Um, I watched him not eat any real person food for like, you know, 18 years of his life. And I've had the insane pleasure of being able to cheer him on from the sidelines while he does all these cool things. Uh, we want to introduce you to my brother, Barney. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Well, well, let's talk about this real person food thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a pretty funny. This is a pretty funny one. Um, you you know how I don't. I mean, as a parent, like there's a lot of food sometimes that your kids don't want to eat, and they fight with you about I know, it. I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Did you ever go through the phase with with either one of your boys where like you were genuinely concerned, like this kid's not going to grow, they're not going to gain any weight, they're literally not eating anything besides like cereal, you know? Mm. Mm. They bounce, so uh, mm, not really. But I I see where you're going. I see where okay. You're going. Yeah, yeah. Um, Barn literally when he was younger, um, his diet consisted of uh bananas um peanut butter marshmallow fluff sandwiches uh chicken tenders all a big variety of chicken tenders um so he would eat like chicken nuggets chicken fries anything you know that was breaded and fried um french fries and cereal and i think my mom like as in an effort to try to get more just calories and protein into him at one point he used to drink like slim fast shakes or she would juice stuff if it, if it was in a liquid form he would drink it I don't know, Barn, am I, am I missing anything? I eat pancakes. Oh, okay, yeah. But, like, Thanksgiving dinner, he would get, like, chicken tenders and french fries when he was, like, 17 uh, years old. So you're telling me he was groomed to be an ultra person from a young age. <laughs> that might be a good way to look at this now, in, in <laughs> retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I really like sweet and salty things so yes that's probably the answer yes <laughs> we used to tease him because we would say when he was like coming into adulthood and he was going to go on a date with with a girl or a woman where was he going to take her to eat like mcdonald's because he wouldn't eat burgers he wouldn't eat pizza where was he going to take her to go get food <laughs> <laughs> they do have a kid's menu at most places <laughs> <laughs> Thank uh... <goodness> <laughs> You know what is interesting about that, though, is that, you know, come to find out in 2017, I have a, a nut allergy. I'm allergic to like peanuts and all that fun stuff. So really all that time, our mother was trying to poison me, as I always say to her. And uh, she said it was calculated, but, you know, the story for another time. So, yeah, you know, that's 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 the story of this person who wouldn't eat real person food. But now... Mm -hmm. now barn you're like pretty pretty uber healthy with most of the stuff that you have i would say yeah reasonably reasonably yes i mean and, and you live on an island where you can get plenty of fresh fish and fruits and all of mm -hmm. the delicious things i mean so barney lives in hawaii <laughs> yep tough life you know 
Yeah, tough life. A lot of stuff is good fresh. I mean, yeah, I just left, you know, the far- a farmer's market like 30 minutes ago, of course. So, yeah, I'm drinking some nice fresh kombucha right now, um, fresh locally grown coffee. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's no problem or shortage there. I mean, my friends make, you know, like hand pulled mozzarella, naturally leavened sourdough pizza, and, you know, we eat fresh pork. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I definitely like to cheat, but, uh, you know, it's not hard to eat good here. It's expensive, just like everywhere, but, uh, it's definitely a privilege. So, so what about lasagna? We just need to know about lasagna. <laughs> I am not on team lasagna, unfortunately. Oh man. <laughs> we, we love a good lasagna. So, you know, we just, we just had to ask. But, yeah. I'm not with it. So you live in Hawaii now. Yep. Uh, now I know, I know some of this, but you know, obviously everyone else doesn't. When was, was this always the plan? When did living in Hawaii and becoming an entrepreneur and basically creating this amazing life, how did that switch? Because, you know, you, you lived, you grew up around Pittsburgh, you went to college around Pittsburgh. Um, tell me kind of how that played out from there. Um, yeah, I mean, well, it's, uh, you know, obviously we're, you know, like decent enough age difference, but my like short version of that story of how I kind of like ended up out here is that, you know, like I always say, when I was young, we always heard about this cool uncle Val that we had our, our mom's brother, this, this cool dude that, you know, like I had this image of him like surfing and was told that he was a musician. <laughs> and, you know, like we just thought, you know, you grew up and there was that Johnny tsunami movie on the Disney channel. Right. And I just thought like our uncle must've been like the older version of that, but even cooler. And come to find out he is that, but he doesn't surf. So, uh, yeah, I just, I always wanted to, to come out here, um, you know, like stories of our mother growing up here and going to high school here and her meeting her father here and getting married here. And so I always wanted to come out here. Um, her, yes, our mother's brother, Val, our, our uncle, um, he was one of my original pen pals in high school or in whatever grade of school that was in. Um, we, back when you still had to write actual letters and, and mail them with postage, um, <laughs> I, him and I wrote a letter back and forth and, uh, we just wanted to come out here. So yeah, I, uh, went to college at Slippery Rock. So of course near Pittsburgh and then, uh, I had a f- academic full ride to go there, which again, you know, I was privileged to have, but, uh, you know, our mother told us that, or told me if I went to college, I could do whatever I wanted. I could do whatever I wanted anyways, but she said she'd never bothered me about anything again, which she really hasn't. And so I graduated school and, uh, four days after I graduated, I was on a one-way ticket to Hawaii. That's a true story. So, I mean, I had somewhere to go when I got here, but I booked a one-way trip to come out here. Um, the entrepreneur thing came later, you know, like I, um, as I grew older, sure thought like, okay, it'd be cool to quote unquote work for yourself or, you know, not have like a full time, you know, real person job, even though I, I do have one, even though we own a few businesses, but, um, that came later. Yeah. I didn't really kind of know what I wanted to do or what I was really doing when I came out here. Um, back then I wasn't into the ultra running or even running thing much less, um, at that point either. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is, I moved out here. This is where I fell in love with hiking though, which eventually of course then turned into trail running. Um, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful place to live. You know, my biggest complaint is that sometimes it's hot and sometimes it rains. It's like, it's a hard life for sure. So, yeah, (laughs) that is pretty tough. But I mean, so that wasn't even the original plan though, because when you bought the, the one, the one way ticket to Hawaii, it was still kind of open-ended. You knew you were going to come and you actually were planning on going to Q school. 
Yes. Yeah. So I was going to move back to the mainland. I originally um, had potentially intentions on moving down to Myrtle Beach or somewhere in the Carolinas, um, somewhere a little bit warmer than uh, the Pittsburgh area. And and yeah, getting, um, you know, a class A pro card so I could teach and then, yeah, trying to make a, a career out of golf. Um, but you know, that was kind of short lived in terms of that theory. I just ended up, um, walking into different, uh, country clubs and golf courses here on Oahu. And, uh, literally the second one that I walked into, I, they weren't hiring. I just, you know, said who I was and, um, they told me that they, they weren't hiring, but I told them where I'd worked. So previously I had caddied at Oakmont. And so anybody who's in the golf industry, if they know of Oakmont, which is, you know, not far from where we grew up in Pittsburgh, um, yeah, you know, just even caddying there, you know, and dro name dropping that was enough to, you know, have them actually bring me in for a quote unquote interview. So even though they weren't hiring yet, they brought me on. And then I was a PGA, they called it the PGA PGM. So professional golf management. So I was an apprentice at a golf course for almost two years. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was living the, the kind of like golf country club kid life for a while. I spent almost every day, six or seven days a week, for a long time at the country club, you know, more or less sun up to sundown. And if I wasn't doing that, I was out, you know, like hiking or biking or just being active. My life totally, uh, as Will Smith would say, flipped, turned upside down um, from what I was doing in the Pittsburgh area. So yeah, complete shift. I'm not really sure why I'm still living in the Pittsburgh area. I'm questioning myself. I, you know, every time I we talk, I question myself, but I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I'm so Thank excited you. for you. Chris, I don't know what we're thinking here, but well, I, guess uh, uh, I don't know. Like I said, first rule ultra running, you gotta, you gotta be dumb, but uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that qualifies in this case. <laughs> <laughs> He got something figured out that I don't. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and, and even to that, like, you still came home for a while. You didn't go to Q school, but you lived in the D.C. area. Um, yep. You know, you, you and your wife got married, you and Leah. And what at what point did you guys decide, hey, mainland is just not for us? Yeah, so originally I left Hawaii again on a one-way ticket. Um, I left all my stuff here in Hawaii, but I left. Um, our dad had uh, been sick, and at the time, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, was living on the mainland also. Um, and at the time, I was kind of living with like a, a very light case of like remorse in the sense it's like I hadn't been home in a long time. If something happened to our dad or like, you know, if I didn't visit my friends and stuff, and one of my good friends was getting married, I was going to be the best man in his wedding. Um, so... I, I booked another one-way trip, trip back to the mainland, um, stayed for a little bit, then went back to Hawaii, came back to the mainland again. But yeah, ultimately, I got a job, lived in D.C. for a few years. Um, and then, yeah, during that time, uh, again, then girlfriend, now wife, uh, we moved to D.C. together. And pretty much every year, like clockwork, in the spring, we would come visit Hawaii. Um, and then one year, we skipped that. After we got married, we went to Spain for two weeks instead, which, again, you know, fortunate enough to do. It was awesome. But we skipped that Hawaii trip that year. So on our fourth, would have been our fourth consecutive year. And so we were missing it. And then, you know, like, the, that's, I guess, kind of the easy way to say is just, yeah, we were like, what the heck are we doing? Like, we always keep going to Hawaii. We always want to go back. Like, why don't we just move there? And I, you know, slightly kind of been nudging uh, my wife, Leah, to want to move there um or move here but you know she's very close with her family they're all in ohio um, not far from pittsburgh but uh yeah just she didn't kind of really want to move that far and then you know after traveling there year after year you know just made it super easy to make that switch so yeah that was then when we moved back out here and just realized yeah it's like it's not really any more expensive than washington dc to live out here in hawaii really truthfully 
Um, that's like everybody's big gripe is all oh, so expensive, all that stuff. And it's definitely very different vacationing here than it is living here. But I mean, yeah, it's hard to complain, right? You know, literally it almost never dips below 70 degrees. It almost never gets above 90. Sure. Like the feels like temperature will be lower or higher, but you know, it, it truthfully is a pretty awesome place to live considering it's in technically the United States. So that has to add an element of difficulty when you are training for races, because since moving back or in in the midst of all of your moving back and forth to Hawaii, I mean, you you had run before you moved to Hawaii. Like first race was what? Um, technically, my first ever foot race, I ran a five k in Pittsburgh. I think you've actually ran the same one. I don't know what it's called, but I ran a five k. Um, knowing what I know now it was actually like pretty fast. It was like seventeen or eighteen minutes or something like that. Like so, and I I wasn't really like. I don't even think like trying to run that hard. I remember feeling sick to my stomach afterwards, but I was training for the Pittsburgh half marathon at the time I was dating a, a different girl in college and uh, she was on the track and cross country team. And so, you know, being around that, you know, she, no, no pressure, but it was like, Oh, maybe I'll just like try and do something like this. So my, um, one of my best friends from growing up and I, uh, Aaron, we both had signed up on one of our like school breaks and decided we were going to, um, run the Pittsburgh half marathon and, and we both did. And it, it actually went pretty well, but I remember being like so sick to my stomach afterwards. Um, probably just like undertrained, I suppose, knowing what I know now or dehydrated or I not proper you telling me that you would never do it again. Yeah. And so, yeah, but yeah, I, I always would say, and I was about to say, I always said like, I'm never like, not only never doing it again, like I'm not running again. Like I hated that. <laughs> Um, I mean, where we went to high school, like we didn't even have, not only did we not track in cross country, like we didn't even have a soccer team, which is like a running sport, you know? So we didn't have, like we ran to get in shape or for punishment, but like we didn't have like running sports. So I wasn't like, I ran when I got to Hawaii, sure. And, and always ran playing sports, but never was like a quote unquote runner. So, um, those were my first, like technically two races. And then there was a lot of years between that and my next race would have then technically been the Honolulu marathon um which was or maybe not yeah no, no no okay yeah the honolulu marathon um when we officially moved back here which would be like four years ago now at this point so but there was probably the, a big gap between the, them you've, though. you've gone on to what's lil lil sue what's that uh yeah so uh susanita is a town in alaska so um that's they call it little sue there's big sue and little sue so yeah, i ran a, a race called the little sue 50k in alaska Okay, so so temperature difference. I mean, just just let's talk temperature. We're not even going to talk about what's mm-hmm. different terrain-wise because I'm sure Hawaii is full of tons of different types of terrain. But mm-hmm. temperature-wise, how does that work training for a race that could be completely, like, what do you, what do you do? Putting yourself in a cooler in a restaurant or something? <laughs> trying to <laughs> how do you how do you do that? Yeah, well, and especially, you know, like you definitely want to take into consideration here, like Alaska is obviously a wildly different place depending on the type of year or the time of year, right? And where you're at in Alaska, right? Alaska is huge. So depending on whether you're north or south, but time of year also. So I ran that race in February in Alaska. So it's not like it was like July or August or right now, September, right? Like there was a lot of snow and frozen snow and it was not a lot of sunlight and it was very cold. Um, yeah, the, the training for that really, I mean, honestly, and again, you always take so much away from these things, right? You always think like, man, I could do things so differently, or I wish I would have done things so differently, but I definitely did run on the beach. That definitely helped, right? Like running on the snow, running in the sand has some comparables, I would definitely say. So 
um, running on the snow, your feet definitely need to be strong. All those little muscles um, and your your ankles and your lower supporting muscles of your legs. Um, your legs just got to be strong and you know willing to you know roll ankles pretty much constantly. Um, I and I do. Everybody's on this ice bath kick now. We've been doing ice baths for I couldn't tell you how long. We don't have like a fancy one or anything. Like there was even a time where we were just using because we didn't have a bathtub at the apartment we were living in. We were just using even like a kiddie pool you know, like getting ice, dumping ice in like a kiddie pool and just like, you know, taking like lower, lower half body ice baths. So, um, yeah, I mean, just, I truthfully though believe, you know, like the mind is so much stronger. And I mean, there's a whole thing to dive into there, I'm sure, but the mind is just so strong. I mean, like I'm not, I mean, uncle Val thinks I'm not that good in the cold. I mean, obviously I must be fine to some degree because, you know, like I ran a race there. It was, it was extremely cold, but I just, you know, like if you layer up properly and try and keep yourself warm. Um, yeah. I mean, the training for that though, there wasn't really going to be any good training, cold, cold weather training, unless I, you know, like went somewhere where it was cold. So again, knowing what I know now, like maybe what I have like gone to the big Island and like went up to altitude and like trained in the cold weather up there probably, but I just either, I don't know, I maybe wasn't committed enough back then or like didn't think about it or wasn't, willing to put myself out there like that, like, you know, doing things like that, you don't know, and you've never done before, or can be scary. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I probably would have done things different, but I didn't like do anything super crazy, except like, I remember like running on the beach, trying to think running on the sand would be similar to running in the snow, I guess. That's pretty smart though. I mean, I, I don't think that I would have thought of that working with what you have, I guess you would say. It's even like your body, like, uh, I worked down in Miami in December, and it dropped below, like, 70 degrees for, like, the morning. And all these, all the people coming into the building, they're, like, in long coats and, like, big puffy jackets and everything. And, you know, we're from Pennsylvania. We're just standing there in t-shirts on, like, looking at these people, like, what the hell's wrong with them? But it's, like, <laughs> once you're temperature change gets to that it it's really hard to go back because it was all it was all fun and games until like that following fall i came back home for uh for a break or whatever and like it was cold in pennsylvania so i had to wear i was sitting there in a hoodie on and my wife was like oh what's cold beach or what's what's wrong beach boy you're (laughs) cold today (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> poor chris not acclimated. Yeah. like i i acclimated to to the heat there that it would it it would be tricky it would be real tricky to train for something like that yeah uh, so again that's where i think just like the mental side comes into play and you know i, I truly do now believe you know the mind's just so strong you can just overcome so much if you're willing to you know, put yourself in a position to let yourself try and overcome something difficult. So I knew it was going to be hard. I just was willing to, at the time, put myself out there for something like that. And um, yeah, I mean, I like I tried to do my research. There wasn't a lot to go off of, you know, it wasn't like there was, you know, one of these, like I just did a big race, right? There's a ton of information online, right? Videos, blogs, YouTubes, documentaries, all kind of stuff, right? There, There wasn't a lot on this. So I'm like, I didn't even know what gear to use, honestly. Like, did I have cold weather gear here living in Hawaii? Absolutely not. I don't even own blue jeans, you know? Like, (laughs) I didn't have polypropylene shirt and long sleeve and, like, special underwear that, like, had a weird little flap thing that was going to go over my private parts to try and keep them warmer. Like, I didn't have any of that crap, you know? Like, but 
I had to learn pretty quick. And so, yeah, I, I, I'll tell you this much though. I was like, I think possibly if not the last one, of the last people to cross the starting line, I was not worried about like being first. I mean, sure. In the sense of like, get it over quick, but like we got there and like, I was more worried about like, okay, I need to warm myself up. Like, sure. It's going to happen while you're out there, but like, you know, I, I, I didn't want to get out of the car. I'll tell you that much. It was cold for sure. <laughs> it sounds like it. Well, it was okay. cold. So you came out of that. How long after that did you do the 100K on the Big Island? Um, actually, that was first. I did the 100K first. Sorry. So, yeah, my, my uh, trajectory, that would have been first in the line of things. So I did the 100K in the fall of 2020. So kind of right in the midst of COVID, at least here in Hawaii, like we did COVID for a lot longer than Pennsylvania did. But, um, yeah, I did the 100K on, in Hawaii in the fall, like late or late fall, I guess, hard to remember now. But, anyway, it was – 2020 and then early 2021 was when I did the um, the 50k. So I had done a 100k already before the 50k in Alaska. Just obviously wildly different terrains. One was in Hawaii, one was in Alaska. You kind of remind me like Chris of Chris in that Chris's first race was like a full marathon. He didn't do a 5k. He didn't do a half. He just went and did a full marathon. Similarly, with no training and you know didn't know what he was fueling and where he just said yeah just i'm here to party <laughs> what do they call that the mickey mantle gene or something right maybe you have that yeah. <laughs> i'd say but um so, okay so you you did your 100k you, you went to the 50k in alaska then mm-hmm. came tahoe 200 yep which is insane and awesome all at the same time yep both now you have a tattoo on your arm <laughs> tell, tell us about the tattoo on your arm and and how that came into fruition um well so i have two tattoos right next to each other well i've got four on that same arm um but two are right next to each other from that race one um so like when you do these ultra marathons right other than like a medal um you get typically a belt buckle like but for example i didn't get a um i didn't get a belt buckle for my 100k in Hawaii or my 50k in Alaska, actually, believe it or not, I didn't get a belt buckle for either of those. But typically, like hundred mile ultra marathons or more, you get a belt buckle. So I got a belt buckle for the Tahoe 200. There, they were all handmade by like a local artisan or something like that. She did a super good job. After you finished the race, you got to pick it. And mine had like a dancing bear on it, so a little dancing bear carved out of wood. So I got the dancing bear carved out of wood, like blown up, like larger, and so that's on my arm with the outline of Tahoe. Um, behind it it kind of looks odd because you can't really tell that like that's the outline of lake tahoe but uh nonetheless so it's the bear with lake tahoe and then next to it i have another tattoo that's probably the one you're mentioning and so um it's a quote and there's different elements to that part of the part of the the quote from the story of of this thing but it was uh it was on a post-it note i was at the very last aid station at the 200 miler um literally i was already over 200 miles at this point anyways though too in terms of actual distance ran because i had got lost so many times and gone the wrong direction multiple times that i was already over 200 but it was technically the like 195 mile mark of the race it was supposed to be about a 205 mile or i had about 10 miles left to go um it's about midday um approaching towards the afternoon and I, like i said i got 10 miles ago pretty big climb pretty big descent and i really just wanted to finish before the night i didn't want to have to go through another night and so i'm uh arrived at the aid station sitting down i'm eating like a cheese quesadilla and then you know like half falling asleep thinking man i just would like nothing more than to take a nap 
right? And they're like, you know, just like take your time, get some food, and then like just keep going. You know, like you can do this, you can get it done during the day, daytime. Uh, and I'm like, okay, I, I got to go to the bathroom. So I go to the bathroom, pretty nice porta potties out in the middle, freaking nowhere. My whole crew's there, and um, I'm sitting in this porta potty. I'm like half falling asleep. So my not even going to the bathroom and I've actually fallen asleep in porta pies before, not during a race. You could ask my wife. I just have like a bad habit of kind of falling asleep anywhere. Um, but, uh, I'm in the porta potty and then my uncle comes and knocks on the door and he kind of like startles me, wakes me up. He's like, are you okay in there? And at that time I like kind of was moving around and I'm like putting lubricant on myself. And, uh, I look up when he says that and there's all these post-it notes on the damn porta potty and uh, all these positive sayings and mantras. And then just, we both just clinged onto this one. We took a picture of a few, but there was just this one that spoke to both uh, Uncle Val and I, the, my, our mom's brother that lives here in Hawaii, went to the race and talked with me. And this one said, it's never too late to be what you might have been. And that's from George Elliott. And at the time, like we didn't even know, but you know, like we would end up going, to, going on to, to both my uncle and I getting that, uh, that post-it note tattooed on ourselves the exact quote you know the exact handwriting from whoever wrote it but um it's funny enough like george elliott is actually a female it was a pen name from a writer back in whatever when you know females weren't allowed to be published under their own name they had to use whatever that's called like a, a pen name or a pseudonym or whatever and um so she went by the name george elliott and uh elliott is spelled wrong in the in the quote it's it's e-l-i-o-t and they spelled it e-l-l-i-o-t and um they wrote it it's and uh, back when she would have said this or he like George, they would have never used the words, the word it's, it would have been, it is. So there's all these like things wrong with the quote from the, um, from the post-it note that we both got tattooed, but it's kind of a funny part of the story that we got a, a post-it note from a porta potty tattooed on our arms, but it is true. I mean, like I'm proof positive, like, you know, it is, especially in my, you know, my uncle at the time was, I think he was 61 at the time. Like, you know, it struck with him because like he would go on to end up running his first marathon after that at 62 years old, under five hours had never ran a marathon before. Like, you know, it, it really is never too late to not even be what you might've been, but like to just put yourself out there again, try something new. Yeah. I mean, the Tahoe 200 was like you said, like amazing, crazy, just like I never would have dreamed that I would have done something like that. So, yeah. But you didn't. Then you guys both turned around and have run in and paced and, and been part of like different hurt, like the hurt series. I know I know that there's different like different places that they hold the events and um, different mileage for it. You guys have both run in that, too. Yeah, we've both uh, paced in the hurt 100. We've both um, ran some of the hurt series races. So like a lot of races, you know, like, you know, those, the company that puts on the Tahoe 200 is called destination trails. They run 200 mile races and they also put on, um, other smaller race series, you know, leading up to the 200 or on the day of the 200, they might run hundred K or 50 K or something like that. So, um, anyway though, yeah, like I've run in, you know, not many, but in the hurt series race, uh, races and my, uh, our uncle Val has done some, even, seven days before my last race, he just like hop, basically hopped in and ran like a casual, I think it was like a 22 mile uh, trail race and a hard one at that. Like I told him it was going to be hard and he, he, it definitely challenged him and pushed him. Um, but he just, you know, like he's resilient too. I mean, yeah, we're just basically hopped in and, you know, casually ran a you know 22 miler with a ton of vert on a hard course at 63 years old. So yeah, he's got, a, I got a lot of respect for your uncle. See, Chris, you fit right in with this group. Hell yeah. Chris is about to book a trip to come visit you, Barn. It would be wild. We'd probably put you through the ringer, but you're welcome. 
to come out. Well, Chris is actually training. He's got his uh, 100K in uh, like three weeks. I won't say good luck. You don't need it. No. he. How many times have you done this one, Chris? Uh, Well, I DNF'd my first one, but I DNF'd at 100K. And then the second attempt was, was 100 miles. And I got that one. So this will be number three plus a pacing loop a couple years before that. So it's like my special race. Like I, I want to be a part of this race every year, no matter what the distance is. Near and dear cool. to your heart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the first one, the first buckle you, you always remember. Hell yeah. Now what I really, this is all just building and building and building. And, and by this point, you know, you've, you've gotten into the, the hurt series, all these other races. Now you really, I'm sure have realized like, okay, I'm, I'm an ultra marathoner. I really enjoy this. Let's keep pushing. You got into Leadville, which is a huge name. Uh, and it's part of the, the Leadville race series. So they have all kinds of different races too, kind of like the Hurt series. There's, you know, different distances and different places, but you got in and you just completed the race to the sky. Yep. It was definitely a lot of things. It was very challenging. It was fun. It was amazingly beautiful scenery. Um, incredible in terms of the energy and the support by the spectators and the fans and the, the volunteers. Um, but you know, it, it was definitely most and foremost, it was extremely challenging for me, at least it, it might not be the same way for, for everybody, of course, but, uh, I don't, I don't know, you know, potentially, any factor any variety factor lack of you know proper training the altitude but it was extremely challenging there were there were points during the race where i you know like was saying to myself like i've never been challenged this hard in my life in terms of like at that moment um so at the time i was thinking like this is the hardest thing i've ever done which is crazy to think that you know like people will say like oh like you got that like if you've never done the distance like you know you're talking to people and they're like, Oh, what's the furthest race you've done? Like oh, I did a 200 miler, like, Oh, well it's only a hundred miler, right? It's half the distance. Like you got this. And it's like, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, there's just so many factors, but it, it was amazing. Like Leadville is totally awesome. And the scenery is so beautiful. And it, it felt like a real marathon. It really did. Like there were people out there at like all hours of the night. There's some, you know, crazy stories from the race too. And just like, I mean, literally you're like running in the middle of nowhere and there's just like people out there with, you know, neon flashing lights and bells and horns and chanting and cheering people on. It was pretty cool. It was pretty amazing. Just the race itself is, is great. It's beautiful. It's, I've talked to a lot of people since who've just been there to crew and support and they say like one of the coolest places they've been, but you were up against some big names too. I mean, like Mike McKnight was out there, Scott Trayer, I love him. Um, I follow him. Yep. Were there any cool people that you really look up to that you got to meet while you were there that you hadn't met in person yet? Um, well, so Mike, I mean, specifically, right? Like that's the easy one since you mentioned his name. Um, he used to be my coach um, many years ago, and he was really kind of a, one of the main reasons that I'm even at where I'm at. Uh, I probably wouldn't have been able to do a lot of what I've done without the guidance from him. Yeah, uh, I, I, I met him before. I met him at Tahoe. He was at one of the aid stations at the Tahoe 200 the year I did it volunteering. And then he paced one of his other, I think, either friends or um, 
uh, one of the people he's coaching. And then we, so we saw each other out actually on the course and talked for a little bit, but, um, we actually got to share a few miles together out in the beginning of the race. And then of course, you know, it's, a, it's level 100 is an out and back. So we passed each other at one point. Um, he was, he had just been leaving the, the turnaround point. Um, and I was, you know, like nearing to approach there, not too long, but, you know, a considerable distance behind him. And, um, so we stopped and talked for, uh, you know, a couple minutes very quickly, but, um, yeah, I mean, uh, JP Giblin won the race this year. Uh, he came in second the year before he's a Colorado native, um, talked to him for only like a minute, but an interesting guy. Um, I'm sure he wouldn't be able to pick my name out of a crowd, but, um, super nice. Most of these people are just like so humble and so nice. You can tell when you're out there with them or they're passing you or you're passing them or they're going back and forth with you, um, that, you know, like there's an ultimate fire and something lit, you know, inside of most of these people at the elite level. But, um, yeah, the, uh, you know, the one girl that I was aware of, I didn't know her, um, had never met her before, but, um, her name is, uh, Alexis, I think her last name's Pappas, something like that. Um, but she's a former Olympian. I think she ran in, uh, I can't remember what distance in the Olympics, but she finished like right before me in the race. Um, not, she's not like a crazy long, I don't think she'd even done a hundred miler before, but she runs for ultra um, the shoe brand that I, that I wear. So like, that's how I'm aware of her and knew who she was. Uh, she finished, she finished right before I did. Um, there was definitely some cool people out there. There were people out there, you know, just like even me, just like average shows that I met that were just like, uh, you know, just some tough, tough, tough individuals out there. Some, you know, people that their minds are just, uh, there were some tough people out there. So, um, yeah. When you were going into this and you're, you're lining up, you're at the start line and you did a lot of work for this. You were doing strength training. You were going to the big Island to do some altitude training. When yep. you, when it all comes full circle and you get there and you have your, your gear on and you're ready and you're lining up, what's going through your head before you get off the line? I mean, you're, you were up there like pretty close to the start, like with, with the big pack, like, what are you thinking at that point? Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely was up like, I mean, I was like second in the line, I suppose, and not in the corral or whatever you call it. And, and not necessarily because I really like wanted to be, I, I wanted to be not in the back because I know that this race specifically has a fairly low in terms of like percentile finisher rate compared to some other ultra marathons, you know, definitely not the lowest by any standards or any means. But I mean, when you're talking less than a half, of the field is going to finish. Like I didn't like no disrespect to anybody. Cause I'm a middle of the packer for sure, but I didn't want to be anywhere near where I was going to get like trapped into like a, a thought where I was going to be, you know, content with running slow. Um, and then not, there's anything wrong with that, but I had watched enough videos and documentaries and YouTube to know that, you know, like this was one of those things that, and they had sent it out an email. It was like, you know, you, you can't go out too conservative and risk missing the cutoff. So you can't go out too hard and risk blowing up. So I knew that I'd rather chance going to out too hard, blow up, and then just be able to kind of cruise to a finish, which is sort of what happened. Not really, but sort of. There was a lot more to it. But um, I, I wanted to go out hard and, you know, like know that I like left it all out there. And so definitely since the beginning I did. I mean, I, I didn't for sure leave it all out there. Most people usually, I think even somebody interviewed JP and or somebody else that like Scott, somebody that was near the top and they said, or it might've been somebody from a different race that just happened also recently, but somebody was like, it's very rare that you actually do leave it all out there, right? Like you're trying to ride that red line for just the right amount of time so that, you know, like you leave it all on the course and all out on the field. So 
um, I knew that I didn't want to leave it all out there, at least in the beginning. So, yeah, I mean, I was right up at the front for the most part. Um, I knew I knew kind of what I was getting into. It was a lot of downhill in the beginning that I, it was going to be hard miles in the dark. I mean, the race starts at 4 a.m. Um, it kind of gave me chills when you said, like, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? You know, like getting there because, I mean, yeah, like you want to think like the haze in the barn, right? Like. I got to rely and trust on my tra- trust in my training, rely on my training, know that I already did the work. None of that really matters now. All that matters is, you know, like how hard you're willing to push and, you know, how much you're going to push against your mind. But then, you know, when it's saying no, but then needing to use your mind when your body's saying no also. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely, you know, nervousness, anxiousness, we got out there maybe five, six days early, not necessarily to Leadville, but got to Colorado, I think six days early, um, five, six days early, got to Leadville four or five days early. So I was trying to get a little bit acclimated. At least I knew that, yeah, I had gone to the big Island and gone to Mauna Kea and trained it nine, 10, 11, 12, 13,000 feet. Um, yeah, I was definitely, I was super hyped. I was definitely really pumped up. I was, you know, listening to like hip hop, old school, like nineties and two thousands, like, you know, R&B and rap music and all kind of stuff, which I don't normally do. Like, that's not like necessarily my hype music for if I'm putting something on to myself. Like if I'm just turning music on myself, it's not necessarily it. But for whatever reason, I woke up that morning and it was like Biggie was playing in my mind. And so that's what I put on. And it definitely got me pretty hyped up, you know, listening to, you know, anything and everything that was, you know, Biggie and 50 Cent and all kind of just like different stuff that I'm normally used to. But yeah, I mean, it was crazy. The energy was just freaking nuts. It was really, really nuts. There's just, you know, there's, there were freaking like 900 people in the race or something like that. And some of these crews had 10 plus people in them. So you got to think like how many thousands of people like descended on this little town in Leadville, Colorado, right? It was just, it was literally freaking nuts. I mean, we're talking like comparison to, of course, there's nobody out there in Alaska, right? Like there was nobody out there. Like the race director wasn't even at the finish line when I finished my hundred K in Hawaii, like no disrespect to her, but I was literally no joke. I was the last person on the course at my first like official ultra marathon. Like I was the last person. The only person that was there when I finished was my wife, Leah. Um, you know, like there was nobody to cheer me on, you know, it was like totally it couldn't have been any different than what I had at Leadville. It was just like that support and like feelings that you had out on the course in Leadville is like, it was the same from start to finish. It was just nuts. It really was. Now you mentioned you came out of the gate pretty quick. I mean, your first, to get to the first aid station, you were flying. So my, my original plan was to come and and to help crew and to be part of that, but it just, it didn't work out with the timing, but I had looked at at the map, the course map, the elevation changes, and and it started to get tougher, you know, as you literally racing into the sky. Tell us a little bit about what happened until turnaround point. Yeah. So, um, it came out the gate hot, felt good. Um, you know, my kind of internal goal was to run the first to the first aid station, which was about 12 and a half miles, I think in about two hours, which even, you know, like, you know, I was kind of compared. It's like, okay, that's like close to a half marathon, right? Like running a two hour half marathon on the road with not a lot of elevation change and not the altitude would be like a good half marathon in my book. Right. Like if you ran, if you were able to run like a sub four hour marathon, like, you know, like a lot of people couldn't do even that. Yeah, no. so, so yeah, coming out the gate, like running to that first aid station in, in two hours was the goal. And I think I hit it like an hour 57 or something like that. I don't have exact, all the exact times and mileages lined up, but I was, I, th- I want to say I was in 30 something place at that point, And it felt like it, like I was definitely like way up there, even for the first like little bit, like maybe mile or two, like we're talking like 
top 10 and not because I wanted to just, you know, like I learned in the Tahoe 200, one of the guys that had, you know, we, we talked for a little while and, um, he gave me great advice. I don't exactly remember word for word, but he said, but the moral of what he said, the gist of what he said was, you know, if it's going good, like if you're feeling good, then go. And, and if it's not, then don't. So, you know, like you, again, like that's kind of like the, you know, the make hay, yeah. Make hay while the sun's shining sort of thing. Right. Like if you feel good, you got to go. So I felt good. I felt prepared. I felt ready and, you know, came out of the gates hot and, and knew I wasn't blowing up. My heart rate wasn't high. I didn't have like an astronomically high heart rate and that's typically what I train on, not pace. So I knew that that was okay. Um, and I felt comfortable after some of those first few miles letting people pass me. Like I didn't have this complex in my mind cause I know I'm competitive. Most people are, you know, that do these kinds of things are competitive, whether you're competitive with yourself or whether you're competitive with other people, they're competitive nonetheless. And so, um, thankfully that day I was competitive with myself. I, a lot of people were passing me and, and to me that was perfectly fine. Cause I knew it's like, okay, I don't want to blow up. I'm probably going a little hard, but it feels fine. But yeah, that I got to aid station one may queen and felt pretty good. Um, and it was just nuts. It was absolute mayhem. If you watch any Leadville documentaries, you know, you know, that when they, you get to the aid stations, it was absolutely nuts. Um, the thing to think about though, for this year, which, you know, like, unless you were there or part of the crew or running or whatever, like you wouldn't know <laughs> crew couldn't drive to that first aid station. So I, I knew that though, we all knew that. And I asked my uncle before my wife blew in the day before the race, I asked him earlier in the week, I was like, would you guys not even want to go to that first aid station? I'm like, I could probably make it to that aid station and then make it to the next one without seeing you guys. Like it wouldn't be that big of a deal. And without even a bad of an eye, he just said, no, like Leah, is going to want to go to that aid station and see you there. So the plan was for them to meet me there, of course, right? Like any opportunity that they could meet me, why not? So I got there. And I mean, again, energy is just nuts, right? Like you get to the aid station and then like, I should you not like, it's like a quarter mile lined with people on both sides of the road, just fully packed lined both sides of the road with like a little five to 10 foot gap between them. So you're just like running through all these people, like a tunnel basically of just people. And so I go flying through the aid station and don't stop. Like I don't stop for water, food, nothing. They check me in. That's it. I get all the way to the end of the aid station. I realize I haven't seen my wife Leah or my uncle Val. So I'm like, what, okay, what the heck now? So thankfully I stop. I know I, cause I had been there earlier in the week, which is invaluable. Um, I stopped, realized I don't have cell phone service, but I'm going to go back and see if I see them again. So I run like the freaking whatever it was, like, you know, somewhere a few minutes, like almost like a quarter mile or something, literally back to the front of the aid station. I don't see them again. So then I realized, okay, I got to like top off on water because I have another 12 and a half miles to go to the next aid station. And it doesn't appear that they're here. So I turn my phone off airplane mode, grab it, realize I don't have cell phone service. They give me more water. And then, yeah, it's, it's okay. I'm not going to see them until the next aid station. Just kind of like, you know, you just got to roll with the punches, right? Like ultra running is in my opinion, like man, like calculate calculating and managing risk the best you can. And just, you know, trying to be resilient and overcoming adversity in, in my opinion. So, you know, it's like, who's willing to push, you know, who's, who's tough mentally and physically, but, you know, you just got to be able to, you know, to manage risk and to overcome adversity. And so it's like, when you're mentally committed to like seeing your crew, even only 12 miles into the race, it's like, okay, they're not there. It's all, all right. Over oh, oh well, it doesn't matter. So yeah, I mean, you ask about going there, I was coming out hot and then I didn't see them. And thank goodness I went back and got more water. Cause again, the race starts at six or four, 
I'm at that first aid station at 6 a.m. Um, and then, yeah, I'd like, okay, I gotta, I gotta go. It's another 12 and a half miles and a harder 12 and a half miles from that first aid station to the second one. Now you're adding in like more elevation too, because like I said, it's, yeah. you're really starting to get up there. So you, yeah, for sure. You get to the second aid station now, or did you, did you meet them? Like how, how did that all start to kind of play out? Yeah. So they were there. I hadn't pulled my phone out or anything. Um, I, I left the aid station and leaving the aid station from number one, I put my phone back on airplane mode and tucked it away. Um, and then didn't, didn't look at it. I didn't wait to see like, okay, I'll text. I didn't even text them and say like, Hey, hopefully I'll see you guys the next aid station. I just, you got, again, it's kind of like, uh, it's like a sports metaphor to, or mantra type thing, like trust the process. Right. It's like, I was like, okay, they said they were going to be, or they're not, but oh, well, they're not here. I got to go. Like they'll be at the next one. You're just like, okay, they're going to be at the next one. So yeah, I get to like 24, 24 and a half, 25 miles, whatever that second aid station is. Yeah. I mean, like at that point, I'm already like under hydrating, under fueling for sure on calories from aid station one to two. I only had, I only took in a hundred calories of like actual food. I had one gel. I just didn't have a big appetite. And then, yeah, it was a lot of climbing and a lot of descent, huge descent down to that second aid station. You know, you come down the power line section, which is more or less like a three or four mile descent, just like massively downhill. You know, we're talking like I dipped down into like a five minute mile, like flying down this hill. Um, and I mean, so yeah, at, at, they were there um, at that second aid station. It was starting to get hot, a couple miles of road leading up to that. Um, so it was a little bit flat and fast leading up to that aid station. And, um, you know, the honest truth is I had felt a little tweak in my knee at that point. So I, a few years ago, I had been battling with, um, ITBS with like a bad IT band in my right leg, but I hadn't had that happen or anything like that happen since like late 2019, early 2020, when I was originally training for just even the Honolulu marathon. So I was doing a lot of road running and was just starting to kind of ramp up mileage. And so I had to, you know, kind of go through that. And honestly, Mike McKnight helped me with a lot of that, you know, told me a lot of what to do. And um, that was back when I was working with him. And so I hadn't had that problem since then, even in 200 mile race, like no problem like that, nothing. And I could feel my IT band hurting a little bit coming down that first big power line hill going into aid station two. But to make a long story short, not that big of a deal, like was still running at that point, fine. Um, but got to that second aid station, felt good. Like I felt like I was flying. Like you want to talk about having fun, you know, like flying on a course, like with a bunch of other like ultra competitive people and an ultra with that type of environment. Like you just like, I, I imagine I don't mountain bike, but it's gotta be like, just like flying on a mountain bike. Just so much fun. It sounds like it. <laughs> so you're moving along, you're, you're chugging on through. Did, did the IT band continue to like persist and give you it? Like, how did that, what, what happened with your IT band? Yeah. So, I mean, that really was like, in my opinion, like that was the end of my race. And I say it like that because at that point, you know, like it wasn't really much of a race anymore. It was a race for me against the clock sort of, it was a race for me against my own to, to see how long I could last against my own mind. But yeah, I, I leave the mile 24, 25 mile aid station, um, still running. Um, I mean, not like sprinting, right. But, you know, still running and it's a lot of gradual uphill from that point, um, for a long time, like gradual or actual uphill. Um, it's kind of like false flats for a while too. And I mean, yeah, by mile, like 34, 35, um, we're getting ready to descend down into the lowest part of the course, twin lakes, which is like the cutest, most picturesque little, like you want to talk about little, like tiny little town population of like freaking 20, um, just this beautiful town in, in Colorado outside of Leadville, um, dips finally just below 10,000 feet altitude. And as I'm like descending down to anybody who's had a bad IT man before knows that it hurts the worst going downhill. 
And so we're going uphill for a long time and I can feel, but it's still like, you know, undulating. So it's going up and down. I can feel it's like going. And then, yeah, by the time I got to this like massive descent down, um, I think it's like Mount Elberg or whatever out there into Twin Lakes, it was full blown. Like, I mean, honestly, without trying to exaggerate, I've been, you know, like sure, just like anybody has like a hypochondriac about things in the past before sure. But like the only word I could use to describe is like agony. Like it was like full blown, like agony, like trying to go even downhill at that point in the race at like 35 miles. So yeah, it, uh, it definitely sucked a lot. You persisted, you continued, you not just went to the next stage station and the next stage station, like you made it to the turnaround point and you started on your way back through this. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's like at that point, I still was facing the biggest climb, you know, ahead of all of us at that point, um, hopes pass. So yeah, you, you know, you get about four miles of about 3000 feet of climb up hope pass. And then you have to descend down the backside. You know, I'm, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but just to make it easy, it's like on the backside, it's like three miles, 3000 feet of descent or something, you know, maybe a little bit less, but so it's much steeper on the backside. So yeah, get to the turnaround at 11 and a half hours. And my goal in my mind, I didn't have anything like written down or anything. I just wanted to, you know, again, run a good race, but, um, you know, I wanted to do it in like under 24 hours and, uh, I'm at the turnaround point even, yeah, with, in my opinion, like a bum knee or whatever, right. Like, and mentally defeated sort of almost at this point at 11 and a half hours. So I'm sort of still on pace for that. Like, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be able to run the second half of the race that fast. But, you know, still was, you know, not far off of where I wanted to be at the turnaround point. And yeah, I just kept going. I mean, um, you know, I mean, like going downhill was absolutely the most painful with the IT band. But the good thing is, it's just like if anybody else is ever in this position, you can let gravity do the work. You know, I can promise you from doing a 200 miler, like, you know, when your feet just hurt so bad, you don't want to keep going. You know, it doesn't really matter if, if gravity can do the work or you're willing to put your, push yourself through pain. It hurts whether you're walking, hiking, or running. So sure, if you're like debilitated, you can't go. But it doesn't matter whether you're walking, hiking, or running. It just hurts either way. So if you're going downhill, you can let gravity do the work. And either way, you're just like grimacing in pain whether you're walking or you're grimacing in pain, whether you're kind of like plotting, plopping or jogging, it, it doesn't really matter. So going downhill, even though that was the most uncomfortable, the most painful to every time I bent my knee, I was able to just, again, let gravity do the work and it just didn't take as long, but that's what made it hard was I couldn't run really any of the flats. I just couldn't get my legs going. And then yeah, pull on by the time I was at the halfway point, just complete loss of appetite and just couldn't eat anything. Wasn't sick to my stomach. Didn't want to throw up nothing. Just like I couldn't take in the calories I needed. I just didn't have any appetite. Didn't want to eat. Like I was grabbing, you know, those gels everybody eats. Like I had spring and um, Martin and I would like grab a gel and just like get as much of it as I could in my hand and then just like shove it in my mouth and just swallow as fast as I could just because like I just didn't want to eat anything. So yeah, it's hard when you're not taking any calories in except for liquid calories. Thankfully, I had some good liquid calories with me. So that's a good strategy for anybody. If you can't eat, just try and consume liquid calories. I've tried that before in the past and it, it didn't work. It worked this time. So was able to get some in. But I mean, yeah, there were some times aid, status, aid station to aid station. I like didn't eat literally anything. You know, like there's all kind of theory about how much you should consume per hour, all that stuff. I mean, there were times where, you know, like multiple hours went by and I just didn't eat anything. I just wasn't, again, not sick to my stomach, just wasn't hungry. And I'm guessing that's just the altitude. But yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was hard. It was definitely, it was definitely, uh, so yeah, the loss of appetite and the knee feeling like it was going to explode or my IT, IT band feeling like it was going to snap definitely 
you know, made it a very uncomfortable 65 miles for sure. So. But at that point, you're this far into the race. You've gotten yourself here. You're doing everything you can to keep yourself on the course. You just got to keep going. Just got to keep going. Yeah. It's not even the, like, you know, you know, people say, oh, one foot in front of the other, just like constant forward motion, you know, like all these things. And it's just like, you know, every moment for anybody, right. If you've been in it, you know, it's just like, you're just battling with yourself at that point. Right. You know, you're just battling with yourself. It's just push back about like, can I keep going? Can I keep pushing forward? Can I really do this? Do I want to keep doing this? You know, it's just like, you got to do whatever you got to do to get through it. Some people have a mantra. Some people listen to music. Some people talk to themselves. Uh, I didn't have any pacers at Leadville. So at this point, yeah, I mean, like getting back to Twin Lakes um, up and over Hope's Pass twice, you would have been able to pick up a pacer around mile 60, 62, whatever it was going into the night. Um, I left that aid station. It was still light out and have to use a headlamp. So I would have been able to pick up a pacer there. I didn't have one. So I did it, you know, like more or less by quote unquote by myself. Of course, there were a lot of people out there, but um, you know, yeah. So it would have been nice for sure to have a, a pacer. People talk to pacers with them or talk to the pacers that are with them. And that kind of keeps you alert during the night and kind of keeps you sane. So yeah, I mean, you're just literally, again, you're, you're just battling with yourself. And again, like I mentioned earlier, I really do believe like, you know, people like this, not just me, but, you know, people who do these kind of things, you know, like we're all competitive, right? Like at our, at our spirit, at our heart. So it's just a matter of like, again, are you competitive with yourself or are you competitive with others? Because if you're competitive with yourself, then, you know, like you can win that battle. That's, that's again, a battle of mind, of the mind and, and of attrition. So. I feel like Chris is taking all the notes so that he can sign up for like the next crazy race. <laughs> Mentally jotting them down. <laughs> I've felt the same way. Like, if, if whenever you're just not hungry, you're just you just can't. Like I've blown past flu, uh, fuel windows and stuff, and just couldn't couldn't do it. It's uh, I, there's there's no good way to describe it other than you're just you're just not hungry. It is an odd thing. That's so sad too because I feel like the the aid stations in ultra marathons have so much good food. Yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, one, like, it's not like that funny of a story, but one, I guess, sort of funny thing is, so, you know, <clears throat> you start hallucinating at some point, a lot of people do, right, at these ultra marathons. Um, and I wasn't really hallucinating hard during this one. I mean, in Tahoe at the, the 200 miler, I was, it was full, full on hallucinating, like during the day, we're talking like 910 a.m. in the morning type stuff, like full blown daylight, like just seeing things that aren't really out there. It, it's really super trippy. And I'm not someone who just like, I don't even have very vivid dreams, like in my everyday life. I don't like do that kind of stuff. Like I'm not like super into this kind of thing, but like I've been there, done that. And so I've hallucinated before, but at Leadville, I didn't hallucinate a lot. I definitely, especially at the very end, you know, like saw a couple of things that definitely weren't out there, like less than a handful. But um, me and this guy that had been together for a little while, he was actually battling um, some IT band problems as well. Um, and smarter than I, because, you know, I caught up to him at one point and he had this like wrap around his leg and I didn't tell him anything was going wrong with me. And, he's like, man, you look really good for your first lead bill. Cause he was from, uh, I think just North of Colorado Springs. And he's like, you're doing awesome, man. Like, and you look great. I was like, oh yeah, my like ITBN, like full on, like feels like it's going to explode. Like I'm in agony right now. And it's just like a poker face you try and put on. Right. And, um, he's like, dude, why didn't you wrap it? And I'm like, what, what do you mean? He's like, you should have just went in one of the medical tents and like had them wrap your, your knee. And I'm like, I just literally didn't even think about it. But at that point we're talking like it's mile, like 75, 80, something like that. When he says this, but him and I are doing like one of the biggest climbs in the back half of the course power line. 
And he, again, he had been out there and um, had done the Leadville 100 mountain bike race also. So the reason I say that is because he's talking about like, oh, like, you know, as we're getting up there, he's like, oh, you know, we're almost at the top. We're almost at the top because we're doing it in the dark. So you can't see, you're just going up this relentless climb and you can't see anything. And he kept saying that. And then finally he's like, I'm just going to stop saying this, man. I'm just jinxing us. Right. And so we, we finally get to the top of this climb. And like, as we're approaching it, there's all these little, like, um, what do they call them? Like glow sticks on the ground. Um, the ones you like snap and they light up and there's all these glow sticks. And for the few minutes before that, like not constant, but every once in a while you would, we would hear this giant like noise and it was a conch shell blowing (laughs) in the night, like just this loud conch shells blowing. And we're like, what is that noise? And we're thinking like, there's no way it's, um, it's make uh, May Queen or whatever that next aid station is. Cause we got to get to the top of power line and then descend down a few more miles into this aid state, into that first aid station. We're like, there's no way it's that aid station. Like somebody has got, it's gotta be campers or somebody's messing with people out here at, at night. You know, again, we're talking, it's like, you know, whatever time it was one, two, three in the morning, something like that. So <clears throat> we finally get up there and there's all these things as we're approaching this noise that every once in a while is happening. And, you just hear all this like loud commotion. Finally, we get up there, we round this bend. And uh, again, I, you like can't make this kind of stuff up. There's just like, we see this giant like corral, I guess if that's what they call it. There was like, they had one of those like big things that you like run through at aid stations, you know, like a big thing that you would go through. And this wasn't on the map in terms of like an aid station. So we get up there and there's like, now we realize like there's an aid station there. Like what the heck is going on? So we get up and there's like a DJ playing and a guy's like yelling on the, on a, on a megaphone thing, like one of those electric ones. And, and when people were coming in, they would blow the con shell for when people get into the aid station. So that's what that noise was. As we're like getting to the aid station, there's these two girls just like sitting on the side of the road by they're wearing like neon glowing stuff. And they're literally like greetings earthlings is what they say. And there's this, there's this giant sign at the top of this like corral thing and it says space mountain they're like greetings earthlings welcome to space mountain you're like what the freaking heck is going on here (laughs) like you don't want to mess with people like this because like you know like this isn't on the map and like people are like tripping and it's late in the race and but sure enough like this guy like in not like alien space theme he's like all right runners he's like we got mashed potatoes and broth and coke and chips and ginger ale all right over here and like so he did they like it went from greetings earthlings to like we've got coca-cola and potato chips so (laughs) Uh, that's why I say, yeah, I mean, like sometimes, especially the two hundreds from, from my opinion, the, the food's typically like much better, right? Like you can get, like, I was having like cheese quesadillas with like bacon and M&Ms on them, you know? And like, uh, at this one, like I go to space mountain, that it's not even a real aid station in the middle of the night, but let me tell you what, there were not very many better Coca-Colas, ginger ales and chips in the world at that point. There really wasn't. So yeah, but all these freaking weirdos. There was- I told- Whenever I was pacing Sam, this was like my first ultra experience. I was pacing my friend Sam for the for his hundred k. So he picked me up after his his first fifty k. Then we did the second together, and we were in the dark at the OC, and there was you could hear this cow mooing, and like. No matter which way we turn, like you would just hear this cow mooing, and I was, I was like, Sam, is it just me or like he's like, no, I hear a cow too, and then finally it stopped, 
But then, like, the Facebook page the next day was all about this lost cow, and, and it was in the woods somewhere, and all the runners heard this cow mooing in the middle of the night. That would be trippy. <laughs> it's like your conch shell. Yeah, again, something that wasn't supposed to be there, but definitely was there. Right. Well, and so I told, you know, Leah and Uncle Val, I was like, man, there was this freaking, like, aid station out in the middle of nowhere like and they were there were these girls and these neon signs and like glow sticks and they're like welcome to space mountain like greetings earthlings and they're like yeah 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 and then sure <laughs> enough like thank god somebody did an interview for one of those like you know ultra running magazine or something like that and they wrote down they were like you know they they wrote pretty eloquently about how like they were surprised in the middle of the night when they came up upon this like uh makeshift aid station that wasn't actually supposed to be there by just like you know like random campers and it was like kind of a a glowing spot in a dark time of the race for them and i was like i sent it to them and i was like see look like i'm not crazy it was out there <laughs> you you made it through with the help of the the earthling the earthling visitors earthling greeters yeah <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Well, I'm I'm super glad that you finished. But you know, as you came in, you finished. You know, I feel like we all go through like the post race blues and the, the all the things that go through your head after your race of like, oh my gosh, I did it. Oh my gosh, that was the worst thing ever. Oh my gosh, that was the best thing ever. And there's eight thousand emotions that flow through your head and through your body oh, for yeah. the next couple days. Now that you've had some time to let that all settle, what's the next race? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, during the race, you're not kidding. Like when you're when it's bad, it's bad, right? You're like, I'm retiring. This sucks. Like I'm never doing this again, right? You know, like they always say, like don't let an ultra runner like make any important decisions during a race because it changes minute by minute, right? Like <laughs> your highs and lows are like are really really high and really really low. Um, but yeah, it's all worth it when you finish. This is definitely all true. Definitely. Yeah, you know it. It's, it's just, it's crazy. The highs are so high and the lows are so low, but I mean, literally, yeah, the other day, like two, three days ago, I almost signed up for a freaking another hundred and in the springtime and I didn't do it. I was like, oh, I got to talk to my wife, all this crap, but, um, we have a no same race twice policy in our household. So like, I'm not going back to Tahoe. I'm not going back to Leadville. Um, as much as like, I love that town and the race was great. It was just like, you know, there's so many amazing places out there in the world, you know, clearly. Right. And so many probably amazing races too. So, you know, why not like go try different things? And it's not like we have some unlimited budget for money or time. So we can't, we don't have the luxury of just like doing everything. So you got to make time for, you know, what you want. And, um, yeah, after the race, I thankfully I didn't have like any crazy like post race blues. That definitely is a thing. It was harder after Tahoe for me for sure for whatever reason. Um, Leadville wasn't too bad. I was yes again just happy that I finished for sure um, and got the belt buckle. I wasn't like overly disappointed that I didn't get like the quote unquote big belt buckle or that I didn't reach my like time goal. Um, you know, I've I've listened to a lot and and read a lot more about like stoicism over the past. You know maybe a couple of years, actually, I guess maybe like two or so years. And, um, you know, really one of the important things that I've learned is just, yeah, like, you know, success isn't black and white and progress isn't always linear. Right. So, um, you know, just because 
it didn't go to plan or didn't go exactly as you want for anything, not just my race, but anybody's anything. It doesn't mean that you're a failure, right? That's why like I still to this moment, like I don't identify as like a runner and ultra runner, like sure. Ultra running is something I do, but you know, like when you just fully ingrain yourself in something, like I'm sure that's really what it takes to be great. Like when you want to talk about like the greats, but at the end of the day, it's like, if you identify as something and then you fail at that thing, you know, like, how is it hard? How, how would it not be hard to not identify as a failure? Right. If you do fail at something that you identify as. So that's why this is all supposed to just supplement your life. This shouldn't right. be, well, I shouldn't say that it shouldn't be your identity because to some people it is their identity. And, and right. this, some of those people are paid athletes. And listen, I feel like if you are a paid athlete, then this is a completely different conversation. But for us, for sure. We are just adult athletes. We are trying to live our best lives. We are trying to be in a good shape and to do healthy things and incredible things and crazy things. So, yeah, at the end of the day, this should supplement your life, not take it over. Right. Yeah. And for me, it's like, uh, yeah, I do want to do what is bigger and better for sure, just like anybody. And, you know, I want to train hard. Like that's, that was my biggest takeaway is like, man, I should have trained harder, but you know, life gets in the way for people, right. For everyday average middle of the Packers or back of the Packers or whatever, even front of the Packers, like, you know, people that are professional trained athletes complain and whine and whimper about how they don't have enough time. So, you know, other people, I mean, you know, if you got kids, if you got jobs, if you got pets, whatever it is, like, you know, you make time for what's important. So, you know, my, my big takeaway was like, man, yeah, I, I wish I had trained harder, but my biggest fear going into the race was that, you know, fear of the unknown. I didn't know what that altitude was going to do to me. I thought I was going to have a hard time breathing and I didn't, it ended up being my knee that, you know, figuratively shot me in the foot. So, and that's not something you can pre- prepare for. So I think, you know, this ultra running thing and endurance sports, even not just ultra running, but for me, it's an, it's ultra running, but for just like people who are challenging themselves and particularly this comes out well with endurance sports for people who are yeah, living that endurance athlete lifestyle, even is just like a, an, an average Joe, so to speak, you know, it's teaching you valuable lessons for the everyday life. So yeah, for me, I don't, I don't know exactly what's next. I mean, I do want to be challenged. I've for a long time, I've wanted to do a last man standing race. I've thought for a long while that that race format suits me very well, but I don't know until I try and I won't know until I try. And so that's something that interests me. I'd, I'd really like to do a, as I call them, like a backyard style race, a, a last, a last man, last person standing race. So um, I do think that's in the cards for me at some point. I don't know when or where, but um, I would like to do one of those. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a million other great, like crazy cool races, some big, some not, some proclaimed, some not. I mean, who wouldn't like with their right mind want to do like Western States or UTMB, one of these like crazy high profile, like ultra marathons and, you know, like a lot of people. <laughs> Sparkly <buy>. marathons. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was, I was going to say a lot of people wouldn't want to do it, but it's like, I'm one of those crazy people that would 100% line up at the Barkley if they would give me, give me the email or the letter to go like without a shadow of a doubt, I'd be there literally next year. Like it wouldn't matter. I would 100% go. So like I, for me, it's like, I don't know what's next, but I know, you know, whatever it is, I'm going to do something that's going to challenge me and push me. And I'm going to figure out, you know, if I'm going to be able to overcome it or how long it's going to take or how hard am I willing to push? What am I willing to put into it? You know, I, I feel like for me, that's the right way to approach this and the right way to, you know, like try and, like you said, be a better person, be a better athlete, be a better family man, a better husband, a better dog, dad, you know, all these different things that I try and do a better, better business owner. Like, you know, I, I'm constantly getting good takeaways from this, even though they don't show every day and it's a work in progress. You know, I do think that there's a lot to grow and a lot to gain from it for sure. 
I like this dude's style. Like, <laughs> we could get along. <laughs> I'm telling you, the two of you in a backyard style race would be amazing. Let's do it. We'll do our own fat ass backyard. <laughs> backyard. The race would go on for six months. Neither one of you would ever stop. It would be like Forrest Gump <laughs> running back and forth across the U.S. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not, not opposed to it. I'm not opposed to it. I, I just appreciate so much that you were willing to share all of these cool, awesome experiences with us because, you know, a lot of us, I think, I think your, your method and your thought process on not doing the same race twice is really cool for somebody like me, my husband, you know, like it's tough because, you know, to, to get kids and the travel, the, the probability of us just finding races that we like and doing them multiple times is a little easier, but I like, I like your approach and I appreciate the, the insight and the thought process that that gives other people in looking at approaching other races and in traveling and in pushing outside their comfort zone and going to places that maybe they wouldn't necessarily think to go to. So thank you so much for joining us today. Whatever it is that's going to be next, we can't wait to see and hear about it. And uh, you know, like I said, we'll, we'll have to work on uh, maybe a backyard race for you and Chris one of these days. There's plenty of them out there, you know, whether it's our own or somebody else's, I, I, I signed up for one once and the race got canceled. So, you know, I'm one of those like, you know, signs kind of people like not to the crazy extent, but it's like, if you know, you're late for something, then maybe you're meant to be late for something type thing. Right. So, you know, when that race canceled, it's like, it can't control that. Right. So why be mad about it? So it's like, maybe it's not in the cards for me, but maybe just that one particular race wasn't in the cards for me. So, Hey, if you find a good one, let me know. I almost signed up for one last year and then I didn't, I didn't do it. I wanted to focus on Leadville. So. Uh, we will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep your inbox open, Barney. He'll send you a couple. <laughs> yeah, and if somebody got that Barkley, you know, that Barkley ticket for me, like I said, I, I know people apply for a long time. I've got this weird knack for applying to races and getting in on the first time. So, um, you know, that's not going to work out for the rest of my life for everything. But, yeah, I mean, I got into the Tahoe 200 on my first application. I got in the Leadville 100 on my first application. So, um I'll, I'll definitely uh, take anybody who's got that Barkley hookup for me. You might end up being the, uh, what's that called? The, the sacrificial lamb. Yeah. yeah. There's Good a God. cake involved. There's a, a flannel t-shirt and a dollar. Oh, and the license plate. <laughs> I got plenty of license plates. But as far as the application process, I haven't been able to crack that code yet. <laughs> well, we'll keep yeah. working on it then. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely keep everybody posted. But thank you so much for joining us again today. And we will probably talk to you again, hopefully sooner than later. All right. Yep. I got plenty more good stories, you know, hands freezing off in Alaska, almost, you know, going to the bathroom in the woods is always fun, right? There's plenty of other good stories out there. And I'm sure we'll, there'll be plenty more to make that haven't happened yet. Who knows, right? So, um, Paul, you guys have me on and we'll fun. look forward to talking again. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you. Appreciate you guys.